0: Well, if you're visiting here today, I'm I'm Pastor Harry, and I'm the associate pastor here of, uh, oh, discipleship and visitation and a few things like that. And anyways, we've been going through a series, an Old Testament series from the book of First uh, Samuel, focusing in on uh, David, this person who's called, yes, a man after God's own heart, and that's the title of our series, David, After God's Heart. And friends, I'm I'm convinced that the chapter before us today, 1 Samuel chapter 24, in fact shows us, at least in part, why David was in fact called a man after God's own heart. Now just before I begin to read chapter 24, it has 22 verses in it, let me just remind you of a few details regarding the two main characters in this chapter, King Saul and David. King Saul was Israel's first anointed king. Before they had the king they had judges and really it really wasn't in God's plan to have a king. It wasn't his first choice but he went along with the nation and sure enough they chose Saul and he kind of stood out in the crowd this character because he was a head taller than most individuals. Secondly you must say that Saul started well. He led his country in some military victories. That's what kings did in those days, and he was really quite successful. But he fell out of God's favor through willful disobedience. In fact, uh, one, one commentator said this, his life illustrates just how far an individual can fall when they become disobedient. I mean, he fell spiritually, socially. Oh, he fell in so many dimensions of his life. Now, interestingly, his son and his daughter loved his enemy, David. Yes, his son Jonathan was David's best friend, and his daughter Michael was David's wife, which proved to be very awkward for all concerned. Fifthly, and I think this is the most tragic thing about King Saul, his jealousy over David's achievements drove him to seek David's life. In fact, he spent far too much time chasing down David to try to take his life. And ironically, David loved King Saul. David was his most loyal subject, so he was really trying to seek and kill the wrong person. And David... David was a gifted musician, written so many of our beautiful psalms, prayers, and songs. In fact, I think he was a music therapist because he, in fact, was called upon by Saul to sing to him or play music for him when he was upset. Of course, David was most obviously a valiant warrior. He's the one who took down that giant Goliath. He was also chosen by God to be Israel's second king. But interestingly, he was anointed anointed by that famous prophet Samuel a long time before he became king. And I'm sure he must have wondered sometimes during the course of his life, am I really going to be king? Someone's trying to take my life. In fact, many people were trying to take his life because he was a soldier. Well, we also know this about David, and I think this is the key to David's life. Three times in 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says this The Lord was with David. And because of that, he succeeded in almost everything he did. In fact, in everything he did. And friends, I think the interesting thing about this is it is true of you as well. The Lord is with you, we are together. Throughout the, in fact, the entire world, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is with us. The Lord lives within us by His Holy Spirit. Also, another amazing thing about David was this he refused to take Saul's life when he was given the chance. On two occasions, he could have taken Saul's life. He was a soldier, and and this Saul was trying to take his life. So you might say it would have been very justified for him to do that, but he refused to take Saul's life. So with these words of introduction, let me begin to read 1 Samuel 24. If you have your Bibles, you might want to open there. But I will put today's text up here on the screen as well, and we'll go through a paragraph at a time. <clears throat> After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of Angeti. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Yes, Saul is out to find and kill David, and that's exactly what he was seeking to do before he was actually called to fight against a neighboring group called the Philistines, a group of people that Israel often was at conflict with. In fact, the previous chapter tells us that Saul was searching for David, and now I'm quoting scripture, day after day Instead of leading his country, he was spending his time chasing down his most loyal servant. But the scriptures go on to say that God did not give David into his hands. And of note, David, or I mean Saul, excuse me, enlisted three hundred, three thousand 3,000 of his best men to chase and find David. In contrast, the previous chapter tells us that David only had about 600 men with him which means David was outnumbered five to one. And oh yes, and oh yes, here's who David had in his group. The Bible says they were distressed men, they were in debt men, and they were discontented. Now that's not exactly the A-team, is it? But God, friends, is sovereign. And he wasn't going to let... King Saul, jealous seeing King Saul take down, take down David. Continuing in verse 3 and 4. He came to the sheep pens, that is Saul. Sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The man said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. What a great opportunity David had to take out the person who was seeking to take his life. Yes, Saul enters the cave, nature calls not knowing that in the back of the cave, David was hiding out with his 600 men. Obviously, it must have been a very large cave. David's men, of course, tell David, hey, this is the opportunity from God himself. And in my opinion, what the men said to David didn't seem unlogical, illogical at all. Are not these circumstances from God himself? Surely the thought must have crossed his mind as he crept up with his knife or sword in hand. And instead of killing him, he merely cut off his robe. The story continues in verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, "'The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord.'" With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Now, amazingly, David felt guilty over merely cutting off the robe of King Saul, just the corner of his robe. And he does so because he believes with all his heart that he should always honor the Lord's anointed. In fact, nine times in 1 Samuel, you'll hear David is quoted as saying that he will never lay his hand on the Lord's anointed, for he believes that the anointed king has been set apart by God and for a very special purpose. And David never felt it was his right to interfere with God, his call to ministry. Yes, the ministry of being a king. So David, in fact, rebuked his men and forbade them from attacking Saul. And so Saul leaves the cave unharmed. The story continues. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, "Now I picture Saul about 80, or maybe a 100 yards away." And he calls out to him and says, "My Lord, the king." When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen, to, listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because again, he is the Lord's anointed. Now, I find it really amazing that David would so respect this man Yes, but he has this deep conviction. Yes, this man is the Lord's anointed. And so in this case here, he calls out to him and actually says, my Lord, the king. He bows down to this man. And then he graciously asks Saul, why do you listen to men who say, David is bent on harming you? And I say graciously because I can't find anywhere in 1 Samuel where, in fact, uh, people are saying to Saul, Hey, this David, you need to take him out because he's trying to get you. I can never find that. But what I do find clearly in 1 Samuel is this, that this man Saul is motivated by jealousy. Jealousy has so gripped this guy's heart. Yes, he hears people singing in the streets, you know, Saul has killed his thousand, but David his ten thousand. He just can't handle someone who's more successful than he is. Last week, David made this old quote, uh, Jealousy makes you nasty? Well, I'll tell you, jealousy sure made Saul really, really nasty. In chapter 18, we read, after, David, or after Saul heard these people singing in the streets the praises of David, it says that from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Furthermore, David made it so very clear that despite the fact that God had given him an opportunity to kill him, he had chosen, he had made a choice to spare his life. Yes, to do good to the person who's trying to take you out. And of course, the reason again is because he so believes that when God anoints a person, you need to honor that individual. Well, David continues to speak in verses 11 through 13. See, my father, yes, my father-in-law, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. Now in these verses here, friends, David is so courageously telling the king the truth. Yes, he's been tremendously gracious to him, but he is telling the king the truth. Saul basically said, or David basically said to him, the proof that I loved you right now is in my hands. I only have a corner of your robe, but I could have run you through with my sword. Saul, you're trying to kill an innocent person. And Saul, I have no other alternative than to trust God to judge between you and me. Furthermore, I'm trusting that God will avenge you, avenge me for the wrongs you have done to me. And then he indicts Saul with the old saying, which reads, From evil doers come evil deeds, but my hand will not touch you. David then concludes his comments in verse 14 and 15. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. You know, and my understand, David is really saying to Saul here, stop pursuing me. I'm not an insignificant dead dog. I'm not a flea. I too am an anointed king. And I will be Israel's next king. And Saul, I'm truly trusting that the Lord will continue to deliver me out of your hands. And of course, as we read the scriptures, that exactly what happened over and over again, David was delivered out of Saul's hands. It's now Saul's turn to respond to David. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? Yes, his son-in-law. And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you have treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. For a moment in time, it seems that Saul is a changed man. He's weeping over his behavior he declares that David is most certainly more righteous than he is. He admits that he's treating David badly. And yes, he admits that David had an opportunity to kill him, but chose not to. He even wants God to reward King David. (laughs) Furthermore, he even shares his conviction. David, you're one day going to be king. I know it. And the chapter ends (laughs) with Saul asking David for a favor. In fact, historically, it would be a real big big favor and here it is now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out me my name from my family father's family so David gave his oath to Saul then Saul returned home but David and his men went up to the stronghold as I read it's a common practice in the ancient world that um, when families aren't related and one king goes out of power the next king comes in and eliminates that person's family he doesn't want any threats to his throne. So Saul petitions him. The same thing Jonathan did as well. Would you let our descendants live? And even though Saul is out to get him, David graciously says, Yes, I will care for your descendants. Following that, Saul leaves with his 3,000 men. And then David goes up into the stronghold. You know why he did? Because he doesn't trust Saul. I don't think he believed the tears at all. In fact, two chapters later, Saul's out to get him again. Friends, I believe this chapter illustrates for us, at least in part, why King David was considered a man after God's own heart. For in his dealings with Saul, David very much reflected the very character of God. For example, in the book of Deuteronomy, and we sung about this today, God is described, God describes himself with these very words. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. In my opinion, David showed all of these characteristics in his dealings With Saul, He was compassionate towards Saul. He was gracious. He was patient. He was loving. He was faithful. And he was so very forgiving. Yes, despite the fact that Saul was out to eliminate him, he was reflecting back to Saul the very character of God. And for that reason, I understand why Samuel in the New Testament letter of Acts would describe David, yes, as a man after God's own heart. Furthermore, I believe that David's faith in God His deep trust in God to deliver him from Saul also qualifies him to be called a man after God's own heart. For as we read the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 11, it becomes very clear that the Old Testament saints that God commands are in fact those who believe God, who have faith. Oh friends, God loves a believing, believing heart. So then, what does this passage, this Old Testament story, um, aim to teach us? For myself, I found five takeaways in this passage. They're all listed on your today's handout. This morning, I'd like to address three of them. The first one is this. We need to be more concerned about doing God's revealed will than following popular opinion. Now David's men believed that he should have taken up this opportunity he was given to eliminate King Saul. And if I was with his 600 men, I would be thinking, wow, circumstances dictate that you must eliminate this man right now. But David was living by a conviction, a principle that overruled determining God's will simply based on what's the crowd saying especially popular opinion, that was using simply circumstances to determine what one must or should not do. For David, the conviction that he must honor the Lord's anointed was more important than the opinion of his 600 men. Friends, I I believe David's choice here encouraged me to live by God's revealed will rather than popular opinion. And I believe that's why, you know, Paul exhorted us in the New Testament with these words. Harry, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And friends, we know where we can find out God's will for our lives, do we not? We, we just have to take time to, to feed our souls and our minds and our hearts on God's will. And almost everything we face in life was clearly laid out there in the scriptures, how we should think and how we should live. And without a doubt, the scriptures will also challenge many of the popular ideas that swim around us, how we express ourselves sexually, how we view our financial resources, and who ultimately we should be living for. And friends, that's not ourselves. Secondly, I really believe this passage illustrates for us or teaches us that God will protect us and sustain us until we fulfill the good purposes he has for us. Now, as I read the book of 1 Samuel, and it was fun to kind of read it over a few days and and get the big picture, it occurred to me as I'm reading through 1 Samuel that really David didn't have anything to fear. He really didn't have to fear Saul because God had plans for David that Saul was not going to interfere with. You know, as we read in the Psalms, the Lord's plans stand firm. His life, his destiny, his calling was was very much in the hands of God, and nothing was going to interfere with the plans that God had for King David. God had things he wanted to accomplish in him and through him, and they were going to come to fruition. And you know, in a very real way, the same is true for us today. And that brings me a lot of comfort. Although what God had planned for each of us, friends, will most likely not be as great as God's plans for this legendary person named King David, his plans for us are still his plans. You know, as we read in Ephesians 2.10, we actually are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus. Yes, we're made spiritually alive in Christ to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, in the opening verses of Ephesians Paul says this, this grand truth that it's really hard to get our heads around, but here it is. He chose you, God Almighty chose you before the creation of this world. He chose you to be his sons and his daughters. That is a beautiful thought. And in this verse is telling us, here, yeah, he also has plans for his beautiful sons and daughters. I think some of the plans he has for us we share in common we're all called to help build the church up, right? We're all t- challenged to love our neighbors, to be honest in our dealings. But I think also God has things that probably only you can do because you're set where you are in this time in history. And friends, when we finish these plans and these assignments, God will take us home just like he did with King David as we read about in the book of Acts, and I love this verse. Now, when David had served God's purposes in his generation, he fell asleep. And that's how I tend to view my life. I'm here until God's plans and purposes for me are complete. And I want to say, I don't think anything is going to get in the way of those plans, other than, say, my own willful disobedience, kind of like King Saul, (laughs) It basically, Saul's attitude was, God, get lost. But I want to make it clear to you, I really believe that God works in our, even our weaknesses. I don't think our moments of weakness or our moments of failure eliminate us from God's big plan for us. God's going to complete the good work he began in us. So in a very real way, we should not live with fear we should not fear anyone or anything, as we submit to God and the good purposes He has for us and Now, thirdly, like David, we too must resist the temptation to take revenge and learn to overcome evil with good. You know, maybe three or four weeks ago, I shared with you one of my famous uh, my favorite quotes it 's by a guy named John Wesley. <laughs> who said this, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can and all the times you can to all the people you can as long as you ever can. And friend, then Jesus comes along and says this to us, doing good includes doing good to your enemies. To quote Jesus, love your enemies, do good to them. Yes, do good to those who hate you. You know, I mean, say that some may disagree with me here, but I'm sure King David had feelings of revenge when he started creeping up on King Saul. I'm sure he's playing you know, over in his head, my guys are saying this would be okay. But he made a choice not to. He didn't act on his feelings. And likewise, we should not act on our feelings, especially when we have feelings of revenge. We must be a people who stop the endless cycle of revenge and violence that is played out in each and every city in our world today. Obviously, friends, we need to avoid the temptation to physical violence or revenge. And probably those of you who are most tempted to uh, respond physically are those who play contact sports. You see it played out in a hockey rink. One person takes a cheap shot at someone and someone returns it. Or you leave your tough guy on your team to go and get at that guy later. But I believe that revenge is much more subtle than simply violence. Oh yeah, we see that worked out every day in our cities. You know, Chicago always has about a thousand murders a year and lots of gang-related stuff as in my hometown of Surrey, etc. But I really think Revenge is much more subtle. And friends, there's a trail of broken relationships because people practice revenge, I think, in very subtle ways. Let me give you some examples. I'm going to start speaking poorly of so-and-so because I heard through the grapevine that they said something negative about me. Hey, you were not nice to one of my nicest friends, so I'm not going to be nice to you anymore. No words are spoken, but it's going on in someone's head. Hey, I'm going to pull my support from such and such an organization because I did not get my way. I'm not going to greet so-and-so anymore because every time I pass them, they're kind of rather indifferent. Hey, I'm going to exclude so-and-so because they didn't include me in their last gathering. And see, I think the list goes on and on of the ways we can take revenge in subtle and yet very real ways. So often, broken relationships come back to someone pulling back, withdrawing love, because they've been hurt in some way. Friends, like David, we too need to say no to revenge. Something David needed to learn, by the way, two chapters later. In fact, if it wasn't for this wonderful lady, Abigail, David would have taken revenge on a person by the name of Nabal. So David did never mastered everything, anything, once and for all. We keep learning these things over and over again. Now, furthermore, and I think possibly this is my biggest takeaway from this passage of Scripture. Like David, we need to learn to do good to those who do not treat us well. I mean, this is incredibly challenging, I know. But you know in the story before us today David was given the grace to honor Saul by speaking with words like my lord, my king. He honored that man. He also spoke the truth to him. But but secondly, he spared Saul's life when he could have so easily just run him through with his knife or sword. And everyone would have said oh David, you're so justified in doing that. And then thirdly, We need to remember that David's 600 men were also being hunted. And David graciously told these men, imagine the authority David must have had over these 600 guys to say, you will not attack King Saul. And they all listened to him. And then fourthly, David graciously promised to care for Saul's descendants. Wow. David truly overcame an evil person with good. Friends, although there would be times in life uh, and situations where it would not be wise to engage your enemies, we need some wisdom here. The general principle of Scripture, however, is this. Yes, that we must both avoid revenge and yes, actually seek to do good to those who have hurt us in maybe a great way or even a smaller way. As we read in Paul's letter, New Testament letters of the, book of the church in Rome, You might say this is his blueprint. Do not repay evil for evil. That's a great principle of life. Stop the cycle, in other words, right? And then do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, yes, in the book of Proverbs especially, it is mine to repay, says the Lord. And then finally, this overarching principle. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil, With good. Boy, what a great thing to teach children. What a great thing to model for our children. Friends, these challenging commands were written as a blueprint for believers living in a very, very hostile first century environment. They were written for believers who were often being persecuted for their faith. And they're most certainly, they go against nature, Our our first reflex when evil comes our way. But by God's grace, friends, it's possible to live this way, to be known as a group of people who seek to overcome with good over and over again. Yes, to the glory of God. Amen.